You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6. We will be reading verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord, and His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. That's a me issue. All right. Good morning. Uh, Remain standing for one moment. Um, I've asked Shelby to put this back up on the screen because this, I don't know if you've noticed, is all in the plural. Now, we certainly can and should read read this and pray this as individuals, but let's take this at face value and let's read this together as a corporate body as a, as a local church. And we'll be doing this throughout the next several weeks as we slowly go through this part of the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, the Lord's Prayer. So, with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for that. Um, we do not have Redemption Hill Kids today, but we have our Restless Kids room. So if that serves you, parents, you can go right over there. We also have kids' sermon notes. Uh, Mr. Danny was kind enough, kids, to refill the box. So afterwards, you want to come up here with your kids' sermon notes. We've got a treat for you. Also, we have totes in the hallway as well, if that serves you. All right, I think that's all of the admin out of the way. Um, One heads up for today's message. It's kind of a long on-ramp into the text. I think you're going to see why here in a few moments. So it's going to be a long on-ramp, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into uh, the details of today's text. But as you know, we're back in um, the Sermon on the Mount, and as I've mentioned, we'll take several weeks to go through this fantastic teaching from our Lord. 
you should know that there is a pattern of teaching beginning in Matthew 6, verse 1. I don't know if you noticed. I'm going to tell it to you, just in case you didn't notice. You see, Jesus teaching first on giving, right? That was the first thing he taught. And then we saw, see now that he's teaching on prayer. And then we're eventually going to see, after we get through the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is going to teach us about fasting. Jesus teaches these disciplines, why? To address our hearts, to address your heart. What we see from the teaching of Christ is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. Far too often we get that backwards. We can just change the behavior, then everything's going to be okay. False. There needs to be heart transformation. And then what follows after that, right? We live our lives differently and distinctly for God. Uh, If your takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount is, I need to change, then you have slipped through the back door of legalism. Over and over, Jesus addresses the heart, and after the heart is transformed, then change follows. So, Jesus wants you to give generously, we saw that two weeks ago, but with the right motive. Jesus wants you to pray earnestly, but with a pure heart. Jesus wants you to fast, but not in order to lose weight. Right? Motives matter, and our motives come from the heart. It is also interesting to note that the Lord's Prayer is in the exact middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you take the middle of the Lord's Prayer, take that verse, that's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to chalk this up to the Holy Spirit guiding and directing the Gospel writer, St. Matthew. But I think the physical placement of this prayer is not insignificant. If prayer is at the center of your life, just like it's at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, I think you will be in spiritually good shape. I think there's a reason why, right in the middle of this teaching, of of all these teachings, we have a teaching on prayer. Now, I want to broadly talk about prayer for a moment. Again, a long on-ramp to our text. Because in a moment, we're going to see the particulars of prayer. But I've got to ask the question, what is prayer? It's a fair question that we have to answer before we get into the details of a prayer. What is prayer? got a couple really good quotes to help us think well about prayer. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, Christian prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, now note this, for things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Uh, we can thank the 17th century English and Scottish Presbyterians for this fantastic definition of of answering the question, what is prayer? Prayer is not about you changing God's will for your life. Functionally, sometimes that's how our prayers work. That's not what's going on. That's not prayer. Prayer is not about you changing God's mind to fit your desire. Prayer is about changing your heart To align with God's will for your life. Thank you. 
Here's another brief answer to the question, what is prayer, right? It is courtesy of Michael Reeves, and again, it comes from this book that I gave many of you, Um, and he had John Calvin on the mind. He says, what is prayer? It's never been put better than by John Calvin, who in his excellent little chapter on prayer in the Institutes, calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. In other words, prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. This also means that prayerlessness is practical atheism. Demonstrating a lack of belief in God. Michael Reeves is either on something or he's on to something. I think he's on to something. When When I was young... This is going to sound really silly, but it was actually really meaningful. When I was young, I used to pray during the Chicago Cubs baseball games, right? Cubs fan, WGN, on every TV, so I got to watch the Cubs. Loved it. I, I would leave school quickly because the games were usually like at 1, they started at one twenty, and I could catch the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth inning. And I would pray during those games. I would pray that Andre Dawson or Ryan Sandberg would hit a home run and that the Cubs would win. But then one day it occurred to me, what if the 12-year-old of the competing team, let's just say the Milwaukee Brewers, was also praying? <laughs> like, it was like, whoa, what prayer is God going to answer here? <laughs> I mean, the realization, I, I remember it. I don't remember a lot from my childhood, but I remember that moment. And it was like, it was like devastating. I'm like, I was so confused. Now, on the one hand, I will never hate on a young boy or girl attempting to grasp the discipline of prayer, even if it's for their favorite sports teams to win. I'm not going to hate on that at all. I think it's right and good to approach God with our requests, whatever that request might be. We always want to pray for the sick, for example. But as I've grown in my faith, I have realized, and this is a confession, I've realized how often my prayers can be selfish. My prayers have bended toward the needs and wants and desires, toward toward my needs and wants and desires, right? And not about understanding God's will. The Lord's Prayer is a healthy and helpful correction for how we perceive prayer and how we practice prayer. How we perceive prayer and how we practice prayer. I also want to point out that you don't need to perform a ritual, wear specific clothing. And I know that sounds silly, but there's some religions where it's like, you got to have the right garb on in order to approach God in prayer. That's nonsense. There's no specific process, a ritual process that you need to approach God in prayer. As we're going to see in moments, God is your father, and you, Christian, are his son or daughter. You can approach God just as you are. If you are a Christian, you are worthy to approach God the Father in prayer. Why? Not on the basis of anything you have done, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. And that's a lot of what Ryan showed us as he was reading Scripture uh, through worship and song. right? I think the, the Protestant doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, is helpful when we consider prayer. Corporately and individually, Christians can approach God in prayer. You don't need a priest. 
and you don't need a pastor to pray on your behalf. Now, I do and will continue to pray with you and for you, 1,000%. But good news, you can approach God the Father in prayer. You can do that. Christ and Christ alone mediates between a Christian and God the Father, not Sean Powers. Like, my kids approach me in a variety of ways, right? As it takes to take an earthly example and try to compare this to the relationship between you and God the Father. My kids approach me in a variety of ways. My kids have come to me in multiple contexts. Parents know this. They have approached me with various needs. They've approached me, approached me with various emotions. I will never reject them. I'll never reject them. I ask that my kids approach me respectfully. We're going to see what uh, hollowed means here in a moment. But respect does not preclude anything I just said. My kids approach me with their questions, with their concerns, and with their joys. If a, if a good earthly father receives his children over and over again, why wouldn't your heavenly father receive you and your requests when you pray? And even if you didn't have a great earthly father, guess what? That makes the point even more. There's a lovingly heavenly father who invites you to come to him in prayer. So, what we're going to see in a moment is Jesus gives us a model. If prayer has been one of those things that's kind of intimidating or you don't know, good news. Jesus gives us a model. And I hope and pray that this teaching from our Lord kind of lights a fire in your prayer life. That's one of my hopes and prayers for you and for me. It lights a fire in your prayer life. So that was the long on-ramp. Let me briefly pray and then we'll get into the details of today's passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even as I pray right now, um, help me to teach what Christ has already taught, how to pray, and how this really makes an impact on our spiritual lives and our everyday life. And so we come to you this morning wanting to have open hearts, and Lord, help me to be faithful to what you've already spoken. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you ask a Christian... What aspects of your spiritual life would you like to improve upon? There's always two answers. And you know it. I don't need to, you don't need to say it, but you know it. It's what? Reading your Bible and prayer. You ask that, what do you want to improve upon in your life? It's always those two. Reading God's Word and praying to God are essential spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. If you neglect one or both of these disciplines, you feel it, right? You, you genuinely Feel it. That's a good thing that you feel it. The question I want to ask is, why do we neglect the most fundamental disciplines of the Christian faith? Why do we do that? What keeps you from reading your Bible? You can make a mental list. But as it pertains to today, what keeps you and me from praying? I've come up with several reasons why Christians neglect prayer. Uh, these reasons are not scientific, but they're observations for my own life or for just being a pastor, right, for many years. Here they are. Some people do not know how to pray, or that is at least what they think. They think they don't know how to pray. Uh, some people find prayer intimidating. I'll give you an example of that. In 2016, I, was, uh, I went to Afghanistan 
And on the way back, um, the guy and I, who I was with, we stopped in London for several days. We wanted to do the tourist thing. And one of the things that was on my list was to visit Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is the place that Charles Spurgeon preached. I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan, and so I wanted to see the building. I want to see it. And so we happened to be there on a Sunday. And uh, so we went to church. Why not? We're at Metropolitan Tabernacle on Sunday in London. Let's do this. And so we get there with hot. They didn't have any air conditioning. It was miserable um, in terms of you know, climate. And they had worship, more traditional style, cool. And then uh, the pastor gets up and prays. He has like a pastoral prayer, which is fine. He prayed, not joking, in the heat for 25 minutes straight. It's almost like he didn't lose breath. 25 minutes of straight, just him. It wasn't like, you know, one guy came up, he stopped, another guy came up, you know, kind of shaking things up a little bit. No, just him. We left, and I, and I felt intimidated <laughs> by the way he prayed. I'm like, how can you do that for 25 minutes? You must be more holy than me or whatever, you know. We want to make sure Christians are not intimidated by the prospect of praying, especially as you evaluate your prayer life against somebody else. And that was the lesson I learned. You can pray for 25 minutes. Go for it. Good for you. Not sure I could do it, but I shouldn't be intimidated by that. A couple more reasons why Christians might neglect prayer life. Uh, we desire a tangible response from God, right? We pray for something, and we want something in return. Like, I'm praying to you, God, and I want this thing. So we treat God like a genie in a lamp. You ever seen Aladdin? You get the lamp, you got three wishes, we rub the lamp, the genie comes out, you make your wish, and voila! We treat God like that. And usually when we treat God like that in our prayer life, we end up disappointed. Why didn't the Chicago Cubs win? Um, another reason why we neglect prayer, uh, some hearts are simply lukewarm to God, Revelation 2-4, right? Uh, you can also say it this way, spiritual sickness or spiritual laziness. We just don't take time to do it. Another reason, sin keeps Christians from approaching God in prayer. With this said, sin coupled with no repentance prevents a person from praying. Like, it kind of goes something like this. You got that habitual sin, and you pretend like God doesn't know. If you don't go to him in prayer, maybe he's not seeing. I mean, we play these ridiculous mind games with ourselves as if, as if we can hide something from God. And so then we don't pray. We're just like, oof. If I pray, then I'm kind of admitting something. It's like, well, yeah, it's called confession. Another reason, uh, holding on to guilt and condemnation will keep a person from praying. Another reason, a sense of unworthiness Right? You put that on yourself. I'm not worthy. And that might keep a person from praying. And, and the list goes on. So by the time I'm, I'm done this morning, I hope you'll see prayer as a blessing and an opportunity to speak with your loving and heavenly Father. Jesus, I hope, is going to remove all the barriers that you and I put up 
when it comes to prayer. We saw two weeks ago that Jesus began to teach us how to pray by telling us how not to pray. Our Lord says, do not be like the hypocrites. Probably he was talking directly to the Pharisees. What is the problem? Prayer was performative. Their motives for praying was to turn away from God and basically toward themselves. The temptation was to do something spiritual in order to be seen by others. That was a problem in the first century, and it remains a problem in our day. If you're tempted to public prayer and using that as a tool for personal gain or to be esteemed by others, Jesus says, what, go to your closet, lock the door, and then pray right there because your Father sees, and that's what matters most. Your Father sees. Now, this is beside the point, but I would imagine one of the hypocrites taking Jesus at his word by praying in his closet, but praying really loudly so that others might hear. This is how hypocrites think. There's very little heart work, but the focus is always on the performance and being seen by others. Matthew 6, 7 and 8, which Dean read earlier, could have been included in my sermon two weeks ago, but it serves as a nice bridge to look at the details of the Lord's Prayer. In addition to not using prayer for personal gain, Jesus says this, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Jesus makes a similar point, but this time he looks at the pagans and says, their prayer is also meaningless. They drown on and babble all kinds of words, and who hears them? There's certainly not a God or gods that hear them. Matthew uh, 6, 7, the point Jesus is making here, reminds me of the story of Elijah from the Old Testament. We read about the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, we read about his ministry to Israel. But his ministry was frustrated, I don't know if you know the story, by Ahab, who was the king, a bad king. He was an Israelite king, but he was a bad king. And he was frustrated also by Jezebel, the queen. Ahab and Jezebel were wicked rulers, and they worshipped Baal, right? And then we read in 1 Kings 18 that Elijah challenges Ahab. We read about the tension in verse 17. I want to flesh out this story because it helps make the point. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. So basically, Elijah's like, I'm challenging you right now. And get all 450 prophets of Baal and all 400 prophets Ashnarah who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay. What takes place after verse 19 is a face to face showdown, like epic, right? Whose God is almighty? That's what's going on here. It's a challenge. Whose God is going to actually answer prayer? So here's what happened. Eliza suggests that two bulls be brought forward. Right? Two bulls. Bring them up. The 450 prophets of Baal will sacrifice one bull and Elijah the other. Right? But here's the deal. A fire is not to be set 
But each party needs to pray to their God to provide the fire. The prophets of Baal go first. What? Nothing happened, right? No dice. There is no fire. Elijah watches all of this unfold, and he mocks the prophets of Baal. Like, he mocks them. Here's what he said. This is what mocking looks like in the Old Testament. Cry out loud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. (laughs) It's in Scripture. Just saying. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. (laughs) It's like a, I wish I was like, there was a camera just watching Elijah mock these prophets of Baal. Your God went to the bathroom. So nothing happens, right? Nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. To help prove his point, Elijah soaks everything with water, and then he prays. It's a beautiful prayer. You should go read it. And God answers. Instantly, the fire appears, and the sacrifice is consumed. The pagan gods in the Old Testament and the pagan gods in the New Testament are no gods at all. That's the point. So in the negative, Jesus is already teaching us how to pray, and for good reason. The hypocrites were likely the religious leaders. The pagans were also religious. But what is prayer if no one hears? What is it? I'm just talking. It is kind of the Lord also to teach us positively how to pray. So he taught us negatively how to pray, like don't do this. Now he teaches us positively how to pray. Now before looking at the fine details of how we are to pray, I need to point out the unique nature of the Lord's Prayer. There are a few places in Scripture, there are only a few places in Scripture where we're taught how to do something. Have you ever noticed that? What we usually see is a practice modeled, a parable given, or a commandment put forth. But rarely do we see the nuts and bolts about how to do something. Yes, Noah was taught how to build the ark, and he was given all the details. Moses relayed to the Israelites how to build a tabernacle, Exodus 35 and 40. Solomon was taught how to build the temple, and then Nehemiah after him. But all these examples are physical structures being built. But being taught how to pray seems to be in this other category. Like you're not grabbing a hammer and some nails to build something. Let me ask you this question. Where in the Bible are you taught how to read your Bible? You ever think about that? We know that we should read the Bible. It is God's revealed word to his people. We see the importance of interpreting the Bible correctly. We've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount series. But we're never given us step-by-step instructions on how to read the Bible. Every student in a Bible college or seminary has had to take a class called hermeneutics, or it's called something like principles of biblical interpretation. Students take the class because, in theory, they're taught how to read and interpret the Bible. I've never seen or heard a Bible school or seminary class about the principles of knowing how to pray. How to pray? Maybe it exists. I've never seen it. And probably for good reason, because Jesus teaches us how to pray right here. Our Lord Jesus uses these words of verse 9. Pray like this. 
pray like this. If you struggle in your prayer life or how to pray, right? I have really good news for you. Jesus teaches you how to pray. Jesus does not say that these are the only words you should use when praying. Jesus prays in John 17 to the Father, and his prayer is entirely different, right? No, Jesus teaches us some of the foundations of your prayer life. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and each petition is like a piece of stone that is a part of a greater foundation of your prayer life. Now, before looking at each petition, Jesus corrected the the pagan problem, by directing prayer in the right direction toward the Father. In the Greek, the first word of the Lord's prayer is pater, Father. Throughout the Bible, we find God portrayed as a father. This portrayal, however, is surprisingly rare in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is specifically called the father of the nation of Israel. We go to Deuteronomy and Isaiah to see all that. God is also called the father of specific individuals. For example, we can go to 2 Samuel 7.14. But these occurrences only happen 15 times in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus builds out a doctrine of the fatherhood of God. Father was the preferred term of Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus calls God Father 65 times. And in the Gospel of John alone, over 100 times. Listen to the words of Kevin DeYoung as he explains the weight and privilege of approaching God the Father in prayer. And I've been, so you know, been reading his fantastic little book on the Lord's Prayer. I highly recommend it. The God of the universe, the God who made the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is how Elijah prayed, by the way. The God of the ten plagues in the Red Sea, the God of the glory cloud in the tabernacle, the God who shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the God who showed himself to Daniel as the great ancient of days, the God before whom no one can stand face to face and live. Jesus wants us to call this God Father. All week, all week, I've been saying two words to myself. And I still don't think I understand the depth of what I'm actually preaching to myself. I've been saying, our Father, over and over and over and over. And I stop right there. Kevin DeYoung um, goes on to point out that if that it is our natural, it is not our natural birthright in which we call God Father. Not anyone can do that, but it is your born again birthright that allows you, Christian, to call God Father. Now think about the language being used here. God the Son, I mean, I'm getting very specific. God the Son addresses God as a Father. Jesus does not use the word mother. 
Jesus does not use the word brother or sister. He uses the term father. This makes sense and it's consistent with Scripture when you consider the order and nature of a family. Yes, God is spirit, right? Don't want to preclude, uh, exclude that, John 4, 24. God is spirit and he does not have a body, right? God doesn't have a biological gender. However, language must be used to rightly understand the three persons and one nature of God. We have to use language. Throughout the scripture, God reveals himself as a king, as a husband, and as a father. But never is God understood as a queen, as a wife, or a mother. Never. Um, several weeks ago, I was sent a clip of a large church singing worship. At least that's what they were thinking to themselves. Well, it was more like worship to Baal and not to the God of the Bible. And in the song, all the masculine pronouns were changed to feminine pronouns. No joke. A father was changed to mother. It was truly hundreds of people participating in pagan worship in a building that many people call church. Like newsflash, I don't care what the culture says, God is not changing his pronouns. And we should never change it for him. The concepts of father, son, and spirit have intention and purpose. Jesus does not teach us to pray to a mother, but to a heavenly father. With these words, our Father, Jesus is already instructing us how to pray. For some of you, I'm about to wreck your prayer life. Sorry, not sorry. But I'm going to hopefully rebuild your prayer life and how we, how we go about it. Here we go. Ready? Sorry, not sorry. It is common to hear people pray what? Dear Jesus. Right? Now, on the one hand, it is not wrong pray to Jesus. Jesus is God. It is not wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You will not be cast out as a heretic if you have been leading out in prayer with dear Jesus. Promise. But I, 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 think, I think we should acknowledge and heed the pattern set forth by Christ. We pray to our Father in heaven. So with the entire Trinity in view, Prayer looks something like this. We pray to the Father because of the Son and through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you think of prayer like that, what's happening? The entire Godhead's included in your prayer and is participating in your prayer. Like when you lead out with dear Jesus, when you say Father, like truly, when does that, when does that occur? Usually never. But when you follow the pattern of Christ, we begin to see, ah, pray to the Father because of the Son and through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That right there can really change your prayer life. Again, if someone comes up during corporate prayer and says, Dear Jesus, I'm not going to go to the back and cut off the sound. That's not going to happen. I'm making no threats. But I think the model set forth by the Son is important. It's not insignificant. 
Okay, we pray to the Father, but where is the Father located? In heaven, right? Next week, we'll look at the significance of heaven in relationship to earth. But for now, just note that you pray to a Father who is other than you, yet he is a Father who is always near to you. There is a Father in heaven who delights to hear the prayers of his children. Proverbs 15, verse 8. You have a Father who delights to hear your prayer. He delights to hear you pray before you put the kids, kids, to, excuse me, kids to bed, fathers, dads. He delights in your prayer before you have meal. He delights in your prayer when you are weeping. He delights in your prayer when you are rejoicing. He invites you and he delights in your prayer. In John 17, we read about the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer is often called the high priestly prayer. And what do we see? We see the son praying to his father. And what does Jesus imply by telling us to pray to our Father in heaven, to model that, like Jesus tells us to do it, and he models it in John 17. If you are a son or daughter of God, you are invited to pray to your heavenly Father. You pray to a Father that loves you. You pray to a Father who, will, who does not want you to fail, but he is for you. You pray to a Father who will listen to you. You pray to a Father who is for you. You pray to a Father that will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen. I am an earthly father of two wonderful daughters. But at the end of the day, when all the chips are on the table, would I rather have my children learn to come to me or go to the sovereign Father God of the universe? Yes, I'm there for them. I will be there for them. But what would I rather have their initial impulse be when life goes sideways, I want their impulse to be on their knees in prayer or laying down in prayer or sitting down in prayer or standing up in prayer. I don't care how you do it. I want that to be the impulse. I want them to approach a gracious Father who reigns in heaven. Newsflash, I don't reign in heaven. Actually, not that important of a person. But God the Father who reigns in heaven, oof, you can approach him. That's good stuff. So Jesus instructs us to pray to our God in heaven. Now, finally, we're actually getting to the first petition, but I won't keep you too long. Hallowed be your name. That's the first petition of six in the Lord's Prayer. We do not use the word hallowed in our modern-day parlance, in our language. If you do, great. Nobody knows what you mean. <laughs> uh, the only two times we read the word hallowed in our English Bibles is here, and then again in Luke 11, which is like the condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. So what does hallowed mean? If we're saying hallowed be your name, what does that even mean? The word hallowed comes from the Greek word for holy. Hagias, or as a verb, hagiazo. In the context of this passage, hollow, hollowed refers to reverence. Let's go back to Kevin DeYoung one more time. Um, like Reeves earlier, he had Calvin on his mind. He says, to hollow, 
means, may all the world and all creatures, created things, excuse me, see God for who he is, and may his human creatures especially adore and obey him. As Calvin puts it, we would wish God to have the honor he deserves. Men should never think of him without the highest reverence. So you are to approach God with reverence. Now, when the word reverence is used, sometimes there's a picture of like stoicism or woodenness, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus means. You approach God the Father in prayer, think of it this way, with deep respect. You do not approach God glibly. You do not approach God carelessly. You approach God with reverence. Think of uh, a hero in your life. I'm going to make my point with an example. Think of a hero in your life, someone who's made a, a massive impact on your life um, for the good. Perhaps it's someone from a distance that you've observed, you've read their books, uh, maybe someone who's deceased. For me, a hero might be C.S. Lewis or, or John Calvin. In the most earthly sense possible, if I were to meet one of them, I would approach them with respect, gratitude, and reverence. Right? Now, how do you tend to approach God the Father when you speak with Him in prayer? Do you approach God with reverence in your heart? Do you give God more respect than you would that hero? I think these are fair questions because if you're anything like me, a sinner, you tend to take God for granted. If you're like me, it's easy to forget the grandeur and the, and the majesty of God. Our minds are so fickle and we're so easily, we so easily forget. And then I forget that the one who controls the wind and the seas invites me to pray to him. So, if you are like me, I pray your soul is renewed as you approach God in prayer. There's more going on in this first petition. As we have seen, Jesus says the name of God is to be reverenced. We need to understand the Old Testament practice to know the gravity of what Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is a word used for God. In particular, Yahweh was always used in connection with God's covenant people. Well, over time, when the Israelites read the scriptures out loud, they would, not use, they would not say the word Yahweh, but they would replace the word Yahweh with this other word, Adonai. There's more to the story of what's going on, but here's the key takeaway. The Israelites reverenced the name of God so much, they refused to say it. Now, Jesus is not telling us that we need to mimic the Israelites but Jesus is reinforcing in our hearts a deep respect and reverence for God. So other than what we've seen thus far from Jesus, what are some additional ways you can begin to implement a more robust prayer life? In other words, if you were to approach me and ask, Pastor Sean, I desire a more diligent and committed prayer life, what advice would you give me? I would give you several thoughts. This is in closing. First, don't have boring thoughts about God. Boring thoughts or a dull understanding of God will lead to a boring prayer life. Conversely, if you know God to be majestic, 
awesome and magnificent. Your prayer life will be colored and you will pray and understand that God is much bigger than you realize and you get to pray to him. Second, ensure your prayer life is theologically in line with Scripture. The Lord's Prayer is an excellent example of seeing how to pray and what to pray. At the model of how, but also, as we see, there's some depth to the prayer. This is what you pray. Go to John 17 and see how Jesus prays. Read the New Testament epistles and read how, why, and Paul prays for local churches and individuals as well. To turn the coin on the other side, you do not want a theologically unsound prayer life, right? So go to those prayers in the Bible and just ask the question, what are they saying? Third, just some advice about how you can pray. Pray with the scriptures. Man, when someone told me this in my early 20s after the Lord saved me, it was like revolutionary. I had no, I, no idea I could do that. And very, very much, you can do that and you should do that. Pray with the scriptures. A great way to pray with the scriptures is go to the book of Psalms. Start there. You can go to any book of the Bible, any passage of the Bible, but if you're like, how, does that, how do I even begin to do that? Open up to the book of Psalms. Open up to your favorite psalm. Read the psalm and then go back and pray through the psalm. Fourth, be active in your prayer life regardless of how long you have been a Christian. There is no such thing as a super Christian. Those don't exist. There's no such thing as this one guy who has it all figured out. This one gal who's got it all figured out. And so God must like that person more. No, it's not how this works. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God the Father only sees his sons and daughters. It does not matter if you've been a Christian for one day, one year, ten years, or fifty years. Because of Jesus Christ, you can approach God boldly and with reverence. You approach God with your prayers and with your requests. So just that was four pieces of advice for you about how you can pray. Last thought. It is truly stunning that God is the sovereign creator of the universe. Yet, he invites you to come to him with whatever is on your mind and on your heart. Let that sink in. Our Father, the God who made the mountains and the seas, who controls the wind and the rain, he invites us pray to him. God invites you to speak with him. I do not know of any other religious tradition that couples the grandeur of God and the grace of God in prayer. It's truly amazing. It's truly stunning. Last seven words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.